Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dara here. Yeah, I'm back off the menu. Is rolling your way. We're counter-programming the end of the Cold War. That's right. We're not going to... We're not going down with the ship. Nobody is. What are you going to do? Are you going to text me? you going to tell me what you're cooking today? I am dying to hear these things. 651-989-9226. I have a pretty fun show today. Have you thought about how much of the woods you can pickle? Well, I got somebody here who has thought about this. Uh, Jonathan Gans, chef Jonathan Gans of The Bachelor Farmer, took over about a year, a couple months ago. And he... Hired a full-time forager, Alan Burgo. I've been writing about this. Um, I just really want to talk about what he's discovered and how it has been uh, eating the forest for a solid year. I'm uh, just interested in this. Later on, I've got Peter Sieve. He launched a new food lit journal called Meal. We're going to talk about whether Minneapolis-St. Paul is going to be the home of the next Lucky Peach. Remember that show? That show, it wasn't a show. It was a magazine. Remember Lucky Peach the magazine? It was so brainy and long. Uh, and now we got one right here in town. All right, Jonathan Gans, thank you for coming down. Thank you, Chef. My pleasure. Thanks for All right, me. so if people don't know, you took over Bachelor Farmer, our, one of our Nordic leading restaurants on the riverfront here, about a year ago, last December, or a year ago, December. And then you got to talking to of. Uh, Alan Burgo, known as the Forager Chef, he's working on a cookbook. You thought, well, let's put our heads together. You're going to be out in the woods every day picking up stuff for a cookbook. I am interested in what you're up to. And then it just seems like you guys are off and running. I mean, I it's fantastic. I couldn't imagine a better relationship than working with Alan. It's exactly what we wanted to do coming into the Bachelor Farmer was, you know, explore not just the agriculture and, and uh, the farming that's here, but really the woods and the wild things and the you know, what, what nature is providing out there in the wilderness. And there's nobody better than him to help us with that. So it's been great. Yeah, I actually, I just happened to open a jar of wild hawthorn jelly this week. It's something I picked up, I think, at Mesopia, which is a great little store in Prior Lake that's uh, integrated in the Native American communities. And it's uh, something from the Red Lake Nation. This wild hawthorn jelly, it tastes so different. It kind of tastes like an old tawny port in some ways it's got Mm. this just woody quality to it i just love it and i was you know you just always have to kind of think well um the probably the the most trivial part of the cultural genocide visited upon the native americans was that we lost a a lot of knowledge about what to eat how to eat it how to preserve it and uh you know any time we get a new ingredient as they say, we you know make the world bigger. We make the world more interesting. So you brought in a bunch of stuff that you have been, you know, kind of finding from the woods. One of the things I'm most intrigued with. Tell me about crab apple olives. <laughs> so one of my absolute favorite things to eat are olives, and our mission now at the Bachelor Farmer is to really try to stay as close to home as we can with the ingredients that we're bringing in and. 
you know, the flavors that we're creating in the kitchen. And, you know, there's just no olives that are growing anywhere around here. Uh, yeah, course. I've never totally understood <clears throat> that because those Russian olive trees are everywhere. Yeah. And yet olive olives can't get them. You can't get them. So we figured out that if we took some really young crab apples that are unripe and basically brined them like you would to make an olive, that it gets us pretty close. It's not exactly an olive, but uh, they're as close as we've gotten so far, and they're delicious. So they've been in brine for about eight months uh, with some rosemary and garlic and lemon, and then we just sort of finish them with a little bit of olive oil. And if you close your eyes and try real hard, it almost tastes like an olive. <laughs> I have had pickled peaches. That's a that's another thing. A, a young, a very small, stoneless pickled mm-hmm. peach. I think that's a Georgia thing, or is that an Italy thing, or all of those things? All of those things, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not unheard of. And so you just get these. I mean, crab apples. We are rich in crab apples in Minnesota. We are and rich it's in crab apples. Fun to see them in the winter. All right. Um, so they have little seeds, but you can just eat the whole thing. This is live, live on air t- testing here. I have bitten into the small crab apple. Oh, it's kind of <laughs> yummy. I'm a pickle gal. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to put olive oil on them because mm-hmm. it does kind of fool you and make you feel like it's an olive. Yeah, because they don't have the sort of fatty, juicy quality quite like an olive does, so just a little bit of olive oil helps. All right, if anybody out there is listening and they've got crab apples that grow, um, what do you do with them once you've got them all pickled and got some olive oil on them what how do you put them on salads do you right. crush them do you slice them yeah right now we're sort of playing with them uh, a lot of times we're just putting them in a little bowl and giving them to folks that we you know that we want to hand them out to oh you um, just put you just serve them like olives just serve them like olives yeah um we've done them warm with some toasted garlic and like grilled lemon which is really nice uh, i like them cold as well so i just treat them exactly like an olive and just tell people they're olives and uh you know let the imagination do the rest they if you could see them out there in listener land, they're a very <laughs> pale, kind of all you know, olive yellow, spring green, pale though. Um, and they, you know, kind of tricky. Okay, I like that very much. Uh, what else did you bring? So w- one of the things that I'm just fascinated with is just the flavors that we get from the trees around here. And so I brought a couple things that uh, we've preserved. All all the stuff that we have here today is stuff that was from last season that we preserved. And that's a big part of what we do, certainly at the Bachelor Farmer, is try to capture the season with different preservation uh, techniques. So there's a few things here from the trees. One, uh, there's two things that are syrups. Uh, one is a syrup made from cedar, uh, which is this one here. Um, and then another one is a syrup made from the aspen tree buds. And then uh, a third thing are little baby pine cones that Alan forged for us uh, from white pine. All right, well, let's go through a couple of these. So the yeah. cedar syrup, a lot of people have cedars just growing around. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of take the cedar, shove it into a pot with some sugar and water and cook it, the same way you would do mint julep syrup or anything like that? Yeah, we, we didn't cook it too much. We basically made uh, a simple syrup and then steeped, uh, sort of cold steeped the cedar needles in the syrup for about six months. And then, okay, so sugar, water, take some of your cedar, yep. submerge it in that, submerge weight it. it down somehow so it gets down under the... Yep. And then what we did just to kind of really infuse the flavor is kind of buzz it in the food processor then strain it out. Oh, so interesting. So it's like really intensely cedar flavored, but it pairs well. We were serving it with a little apple cake for dessert. And oh, the that's roasted neat. apple and the cedar syrup is just a really nice pairing with it. We did a little candy ginger ice cream with it. It was really, really nice flavor. 
All right, out there in Minnesota, if you think that you could make an apple bunt cake and then put some cedar <laughs> syrup on it and bring that to the church potluck, you would blow some minds. That's that right. would be cool. Um, I bet you could take that cedar syrup and put it in an old-fashioned or something, too. Absolutely. The, the fun thing is with the foraging at, at Batch Farmers that it's it's really finding its way into all the departments. So down in Marvel Bar, you know, the, last year they did a big exploration throughout uh, around forage. And right now what they're doing is preserving the cedar in honey, in a fermented honey. So they'll have this fermented honey cedar uh, that's going to go into some of their um, beverages they're doing. I think some of the non-alcoholic cocktails are working with dry right now. So. Oh, you could put it in a lemonade. You could just put it in bubbly water, and yeah. you could have a cedar, a bubbly cedar that syrup a little, water. Yeah, with some bubbly water and a little thing of lemon would be great. Okay, so then aspen. So the aspen buds are really fascinating. They're they if you eat just the bud itself, it's incredibly bitter. It's like not pleasant to eat at all. But when you steep it really, really slowly in syrup, it brings out this really complex, spicy, it almost tastes like cinnamon to me on the finish. Oh, interesting. So it has been stipulated on this show before that I am a complete city slicker. I don't think I've ever noticed an aspen bud. I have walked by my share of aspens and Mm -hmm. not noticed them in bud. So that must be right, is that like a March, April thing? Yeah, and, and, and that's the greatest thing about working with these ingredients now is that everywhere you look now, there's just food. I mean, the trees and just shrubs that you hadn't thought about before. And you go foraging with Alan and your eyes are just opened to the possibilities of what's edible out there. I mean, it's really a, an eye-opening experience. They used to call this wild crafting. They, uh, and there's just a bunch of people that have this knowledge. And I'm really excited that it is being elevated. Okay, so the the aspen bud syrup, you say it has a cinnamon-ish The, the finish to me is very cinnamony. It has a little astringent. Um, but it has this really just spicy, cinnamony notes to it. Oh, fascinating. And how? what do you find yourself using that for? We don't really know yet, and that, that's oh, that's interesting. half the fun. Is like we make these things, and we taste them, and then we say, okay, let's sit on it for a little bit and think about how we could use it. Um, I think, you know, to me, anything that's sort of spicy or cinnamon-like, nutmeggy, I think could really pair well with, with that syrup. I mean, it's pretty strong, so you have to be careful with it, but it's a nice flavor. I like it. You just get something out of a an aspen tree in the yard and go, it's kind of strong. You got to be careful with that. <laughs> but I mean, that's what you would have said about pepper or something if you were the first exactly. person to discover black pepper. You'd be like, oh, watch out. Yeah. And then you do some things with plums. So I, I always think the Minnesota and Wisconsin plums are odd, but you found a way to, because they can be very uh, mealy. Yeah. The, the wild plums are tough because the texture isn't great. And they can be really bitter and astringent. So they, they have, you know, they're not sweet like a Italian plum or just the sort of plums that we're used to in the grocery store. But what we did was treat them uh, like a lot of different cultures who salt fruit uh, as a preserve. Um, in Mexico, they do this. Um, they call them salitos sometimes, uh, you know, salted plums with chili. Um, in Japan, they do this. Um, so we kind of looked at it the same way. So we salted them. A lot of times, uh, They'll get dehydrated as well. But what we did was salt them um, for about six months and then soaked them in a... Six months. That's a commitment. I know. Uh, But it really helps with the flavor and the texture. Sometimes it just takes time to really get what you want out of the fruit. Um, And then uh, after that, we soaked them in a maple kombucha. So it's a really... Um, intense flavor. It's very, you know, salty. So kombucha, obviously, that's a, f- a tea sugar ferment or a, yep. I guess in your case, a maple, yeah, we use maple tea syrup. Mm-hmm. ferment. Um, 
and then you're putting this salted plums in it. This is kind of mad scientist style. I like this. So yeah. you're just kind of taking all your ideas and figuring out how. Have yeah, you we, had some failures with these? I oh, bet you absolutely. Have. Are you kidding me? Like that's we've had so many failures, but you know it's we have to do that in order to learn from it and to you know this season coming up. We Does just anything have, come to mind? Is it like you thought? Oh, that's going to work, but then in the end, it didn't. Oh boy, uh, the plums are a challenge for sure. Like this was one that we've tried a couple different things with, and I think this is the best application. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. There were just some things that that Alan brought to us that we just didn't even know how to tackle at all, and so we just sort of failed by not even getting a start on some of them. Yeah, because that's the thing about the woods. We are not uh, squirrels. It is hard for us to eat the yeah. <laughs> stuff that's in there. Yeah, and, and you know, just the, sometimes the volume of things that he would bring in was just pretty small, but he's so excited about sharing it with us, and, um, you know, we didn't get to everything. But, um, you know, coming into this new season – we have so much more knowledge about what we're going to do and, you know, how we're going to be able to actually apply this stuff to the menu, which is great. So I came, I think it was last May or so, and yeah. you had a bunch, you know, so that's obviously full spring. Yeah. You had a bunch of stuff going on. And in restaurant world, we're always like, the ramps are coming, the fresh <laughs> yeah. onions of the land, and then we don't have a second thing. It's like, and eventually peas. But you had just table full of things that I'd never had before. What are you excited about for spring? I mean, to me, what I'm most excited about is this the wild leafy greens that really define spring here in the region. And I think that was a big lesson for us last year was sort of rethinking about what seasonality really is, you know. And a lot of times people associate things like peas and fava beans. And, you know, I'm from Seattle and in the Northwest, like those are spring things. And, you know, morels and ramps and fava beans sort of define the spring but here that's not spring stuff that's like summer stuff for us so seeing all these wild leafy greens at the walleye dish that you tasted when we were standing at the pass at the kitchen you know was just such an expression of the season to me because there was 20 different wild greens um, you know in that mix that just you know you couldn't replicate that flavor on a farm if you tried I mean because there was just so many different things growing in the woods so just to me, that's going to be sort of the definitive moment of spring is when we see those greens pop up again. So those new greens are what yeah. we would. I think that you could, I think that people could grow them quite easily. I think they probably are growing them by accident in all the periphery of everywhere. Sure, some of them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, watercress and a lot of the things that, again, like you can walk around and not know that they're delicious and edible because they're just sort of growing out there in the, in the woods, you know. And then they're in a fancy restaurant. All right, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, we're going to come back with some more with Jonathan Gans from Bachelor Farmer. Uh, in his Heading into his second year of really cooking deeply from the great outdoors. Uh, it's such an interesting, such interesting flavors that you get. Um, we'll talk about sort of how it works in a restaurant environment when we come back. Dara here. All right, I am talking to Chef Jonathan Gans from the Bachelor Farmer restaurant in downtown Minneapolis. We've been talking about his year plus uh, efforts in foraging, finding the ingredients in the northern forest. I wish y'all were here with me because you could taste some wacky, wacky kind of cool <laughs> stuff. I just tried when we were at commercial a uh, kind of a, a sweet and sour hops sort of situation. Tell me about these because what I'm excited about with this, <clears throat> these very few, like hops, you always think, oh, you need to brew beer. You got to go through this whole rigmarole, but they grow so well here. And I know a lot of people just have kind of a, you know, spare vine somewhere in an alley. Uh, tell me about these hops because you don't need many of them to make this happen. 
Yeah, so the, the hops came about because we grow them on the side of the building. So in the courtyard there at the Bachelor Farmer, every year there's hops vines that go up, uh, you know, that run the, the height of the building. I know so many people that have some on the yeah. patio just because they um, grow they really just, well. Yeah, They're they nice really screens. Well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you think about when you have a really nice IPA, what is that flavor that you're getting? You know, they're just really citrusy and they're floral, but they have this astringency to them. And so, you know, why we just think, well, why can't we use that ingredient in a different way other than fermenting into beer? And so we just took the raw flowers off the vines, dried them out, and then rehydrated them in just a little sort of sweet pickle. So it's like apple cider vinegar and sugar. And so you have, you know, bitterness or astringency pairs well with acidity. So, um, you know, you have the acidity of the vinegar and the sort of innate bitterness of the hops flower. And that citrus note comes out with the apple cider. So it's just a really nice pairing. We used it as a component in our dish when we were serving the uh, Rush Creek Reserve a cheese from Uplands, which is a really, really creamy cow's milk. One uh, of the cheese. best cheeses yep. in America. I mean, it's it's beautiful Wisconsin cheese. So we did some candied pumpkin and this little hops flowers, and it's just a really nice pairing. And I imagine that people could mess around with this a bunch of ways. It could be an interesting uh, part of a glaze on poultry. Mm -hmm. It could be... Um, obviously with something sweet. I mean, there's just a lot you could do with this. The, w the way that we like to approach the ingredient is, you know, understanding what the ingredient does as a component in the dish. So what is it bringing? You know, is it acidic? Is it sweet? Is it bitter? Is it astringent? Is it um, savory? You know, if you think about that as in what you need in the dish, then you can look at ingredients in a different way and say, well, I don't have this ingredient or I don't want to use this because it's not from here. But we have these hops flowers growing on the wall that are kind of bitter and floral, and you know, we can use that instead. All right. And then this is a kind of mind-blowing one. Uh, little pine cones, little tiny pine cone buds. The, this is my absolute favorite thing that we did all year. And I talk about it so much that and we laugh at the restaurant because my brother started calling me Chef Johnny Pinecone, King of the North, because <laughs> all I do is talk about pine cones. Chef Johnny Pinecone, <laughs> King of the North. Yeah. I love that. We're going to trademark that one. But uh, so these are uh, very, very small. As you can see, they're maybe the size of, I don't know, fingernail or something like that. Um, white pine cones that, again, just we're finding that syrup, you know, sugar helps bring out a lot of the flavor. And obviously it helps preserve them, too. I mean, these were... Alan picked these in, I don't know, maybe like April or May or something, and here we're eating them now. Um, so they're just really, really cooked slowly in a simple syrup. They were probably steeped for about six hours in simple syrup and then preserved in that syrup. And you can just eat the whole thing. So just pick up a pine cone. Now, you probably never just picked up a pine cone and ate it before, but you should just grab one and eat it. And it's like, it's like eating a piece of candy in the middle of a lumber yard or something like that. It's just the most <laughs> incredible flavor. I just absolutely love it. I and love like this. And again, I think thing. probably, you know, some significant percentage of readers have a white pine growing somewhere uh, on their property. It's they're they're not uh, it's not a rare thing It's you don't need to go to the store and get caper berries. You have white pines just. Exactly. We're in the state parks or all kinds of places. All right, so here's what I want to ask. So, you know, you've been doing this for a while. The hardest thing to do as a chef is be unique, right? So somebody gets, a, you know, fancy Spanish olive oil, and then everybody has the fancy sure. Spanish olive oil. Somebody gets, you know, one great farm, and then the farm grows, and then everybody gets the product. Tell me how it has been for you as a chef to now have this whole toolkit of ingredients, spice cabinet, that no one else has. I mean, creatively, it's unbelievable because, f 
first of all, there's so much learning that we're doing right now. So there's just there's no time to get bored because every day it's new ingredients that we've never worked with or we haven't thought about this certain way or we're trying to figure out how we can really apply them on a bigger scale to the restaurant. You know, we're using forage stuff in the cafe and pastries and desserts in the, in the menu in the dining room and the Marvel bar, you know. So, you know, it's a huge challenge to look at all of these ingredients and, you know, say, okay, how can we use these? And first of all, make them delicious, you know, like it, it has to taste good. You know, they can't just be weird. Like, it has to be really good, you know. Oh, I don't know. Some of it can be weird. Okay, so, but then, but then it's kind of, I imagine you've got two two challenges after that, or, like, one benefit. One benefit is that people have to come to you if they want to try these things. You're mm-hmm. not going to get them sure. at the, uh, you know, corner bistro. But then, on the other hand, you've got to have a kind of a learning curve because people are sitting in the booth and they're like, what do you mean it's a, a edible white pine cone? Yeah. I mean, you know, we certainly aren't just – we're doing a lot of tasting internally before we give anything out to the guests to make sure that it's delicious. Um, but to us, that's really now what it's all about. I mean, the Bachelor Farmer for a long time was very Nordic-centric, uh, and that's not our goal anymore. Our goal is to really try to understand the food that's coming from here and to help you know explore this as a regional cuisine and what it means. And we think, we think the best way to do that is by understanding these ingredients, which you know a lot of them are going to really... It'd be hard to find other places, or um, you know, certainly people aren't cooking with them very much. So we think we have a great opportunity to like do something that people aren't doing and and explore this as a regional cuisine, and letting the wild things define what the flavors are going to be. You know, and I think that that's going to be something that we can do for a long, long time and uh, continue to learn and explore and push the boundaries of what's edible and what's delicious and um, you know. It's a very cool project. Okay, so in the, so you're heading into you know your new season, um, and then you'll be pairing these with things that are from here, from with walleye, perch, mm-hmm. you know, local birds, all things. Yeah, that's that's how we're looking at food at the Bachelor Farmer now. Is this sort of marrying of the fantastic history of agriculture that is here, both you know produce um, and livestock, you know. The, the beef and pork that we get from pork and plants is just absolutely amazing. Um, so it's that tradition with also this unexplored wilderness that we're now a year into. You know, we're kind of like, I look at it as though we're, we just got to the boundary waters. You know, we got the team there. We have our canoe. We're ready to go. And now we're about to, to forage in and paddle and, and, and see what happens, you know, and see how deep we can get in the woods. That is so cool. Hey, you laid me a great opportunity to name drop. I talked to Julia Louis-Dreyfus last week because I'm doing a story <laughs> of her on, on uh, Delta Sky, and she told me that she was here last fall paddling, canoeing, uh, not kayaking, canoeing and living in tents in the Boundary Waters. There you go. So yeah. that's how good our wonderful Boundary Waters are. They bring in the biggest celebrities in the world mm-hmm. to sit around and have a campfire, and that is one of the greatest experiences in life campfires. I'm super into campfires. It's all about campfires. All right. Bachelor Farmers, Jonathan Gans, thank you for hauling thank all these so things much. in for me. I wish that everybody in Radioland could have these little crab apples and pine cones with me, but you're going to have to go out in your yard, fight the squirrels. You're, gonna get, you're bigger than they are. You can get some of that stuff. All right. We're going to take a break here. We'll come back uh, with more Off the Menu. Dara here. All right. I got a text from a listener. You know I always want to know what you're up to. I live for these. 651-989-9226. 
Hi, Dara. We're having the adult kiddos over for family dinner tonight, celebrating our son-in-law's birthday, baking a three-layer chocolate stout cake with Liftbridge the Warden Milk Stout. The aroma in the kitchen is wonderful. Love your show. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. That makes me so happy. The art of the three-layer cake is kind of disappearing from the culture. You're keeping it alive, and a Liftbridge Warden Milk Stout chocolate cake is a sign of love. What a nice thing to do. Oh, that makes me happy. All right. Also making me happy today, I've got Peter Steve in the house. He, he is a new publisher force <laughs> behind Meal. It's just a beautiful... Beautiful journal. Uh, you are the new Virginia and Leonard Wolf of our time. All oh right, Peter gosh. Steve, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dara. It's a very distinct pleasure to be here. Ah, so people <laughs> might know you. You're uh, old school heavy table. I am old school heavy table. Yeah, I, I was a staff writer at the uh, at the long lost, uh, wonderful, uh, departed heavy table food blog for about 10 years. And before um, that, you were a full-on rock star. Oh, my gosh. Rogue Valley, Jeremy Messersmith, you played on Letterman, that's, you were a Bonnaroo. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun. I still play music with uh, Rogue Valley and Chris Coza, and uh, and I've you know been doing that along with food writing for a long time now, and they, they kind of go together. I get to you know travel around and eat a little bit and Nobody cares about breakfast more than musicians on oh the road. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've got a whole screed about continental breakfast set. Oh, oh. my gosh. <laughs> I mean, at bad motels. Uh, sorry about that. That, uh, that I'd love to write someday, but um, it'll have to, have to be an issue, too, maybe. <laughs> I, uh, I very often, my ex was a band guy, and so we would entertain people coming through town, and they always wanted to know about the giantest best hash browns and like that's that's how, that's what makes music happen that is that is like the the fuel that 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 powers a band across the country is just uh, <laughs> greasy greasy hash browns at uh, at diners all right but that was not what you wanted to do at meal so tell people tell us all you felt like there was um, space for kind of long form serious not time pegged food journalism yeah, yeah. Uh, so Josh Page and I, Josh was also a staff writer at The Heavy Table. When uh, when The Heavy Table kind of sunsetted, he and I uh, started dreaming about doing something else together and maybe roping in some other local food writing talent and national. Um, and Josh and I were both the kind of writers who always really gravitated towards the deeper, richer, uh, more complicated stories about food rather than you know, we both love restaurant criticism also, uh, but he and I were both always very simpatico in that way of, of geeking out over over very shaded kind of nuanced stories. So he and I thought we might try to make a magazine, and, and early on we even thought if we have to just photocopy stories and hand them out on the street corners, we'd do it. But <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, we ended up developing this really wonderful team of ultra-talented people around us who kind of helped us achieve what I think is a... Uh, a uh, really compelling kind of beautiful um, book, almost. I mean, it's it's a big volume of of really really rich stories. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a it's definitely a literary journal. It's in the kind of Grant uh, style, the Missouri Review, those kind of more. You know, totally. Yeah, and we were we were very inspired too by kind of there's a there seems to have been sort of a rising tide in the past five years of like smaller boutique food magazines around the country that have been produced by. You know, even just like one person or small teams, things like Whetstone or Toothache, 
uh, Dill. I mean, there's there's so many really interesting ones out there, and they're they're very personal and intimate. So we kind of took inspiration from those uh, people doing those things, and also from you know things like the the uh, Lucky Peach. That that was a wonderful inspiration uh, for for long form food storytelling, also, and which is gone, and, and we missed that. But yeah, we kind of wanted to. It, it ended up being just something that we made because we wanted to see it exist in the world i think and that's uh hopefully what we've achieved and i think we're we're feeling pretty good about it right now all right so minneapolis st paul base national aspirations yeah that's kind of the idea i mean we you know we're very much based and steeped in minneapolis st paul i've grown up here i've lived here all my life and i love it very much uh and but we, we we just think there's a really good opportunity uh, for stories like this to kind of break beyond uh, our hometown. I mean, we there's a lot of stories in this first issue that are about people based here and places that are based here, but our goal in telling these stories is that uh, whoever or wherever they might be about, uh, the kind of crux of each of these stories should feel universal and should feel um, you know true to anybody who might be reading it, whether they're in Atlanta or Oakland or you know Spain or something like that. So... I love, there's a piece here by Mecca Boss, and she's a, a boss of the local food scene. Mecca I loved is her a for, boss, absolutely. I loved her work for a long time. And she writes a, a very kind of quiet, lovely, slightly painful, but really, really you know, just important piece about being a black Midwestern uh, person and, and where her food identity you yeah. know, comes to. And I, I thought that would, you know, I wouldn't imagine that that would kind of run anywhere else. Yeah, that's nice. Of, that's nice to hear from you. It, it, it is a really cool piece, and it's so personal. Um, and I think she, you know, she felt kind of exhilarated writing it because she hadn't really had an opportunity to write a piece that personal before. Uh, and yeah, it, it really kind of captures, I think, a lot of what my vision is to, to to push forward with this magazine as we move, you know, towards issue two and beyond, hopefully. Uh, which is, you know, give writers a platform to kind of, you know, get personal and and really. Uh, use their voice uh, and, and and go deep, um, and Mecca really did that in that piece. It's great, and 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 there's no real easy answers in it. And I think that's kind of uh, consistent across a lot of these stories is that they they end up kind of celebrating the wonderful things about food and drink that bring us together, and they also aren't afraid of looking at kind of the more complicated, difficult, painful things that that we can see um, in the food world that kind of you know separates us or divides us or uh, is part of you know tough political conversations or socio political issues. Um, so I, I, I love that piece from Mecca. It's really kind of lyrical and personal and a nice glimpse into her history. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to see that side of her. You know, the I have been a I've been a food writer for a long time now. So I've been a practicing <laughs> food writer for you know twenty years at this point. And the blessing and the curse of food writing is that people want an actionable takeaway. You know, they want to mm-hmm. go get this gravy here or five pies there. Or, you know, now you know the backstory of this amazing Hmong uh, business person. Now you can go to the market and get the pork wrapped in banana sure, leaves. And, sure. But you guys are just like, no, nope, we're not doing that. Yeah, it was kind of a, a decision I, I made early on. Is I mean, there there are... There's so much of that content out there, which is and so much. I've created great. a lot of it. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and yours, you know, <laughs> and you were frankly a huge inspiration to me as a as when I was younger and kind of getting into this game, and because uh, oh, you were always really good at kind of you know your voice is very distinct and you're personal, uh, and there's so many people in town here that do incredible kind of you know 
coverage as you're talking about, which is give me a takeaway, give me a recipe, tell me where to go to buy this, tell me what the hot new burger is in town. And we all love that stuff. We've all, who are part of this magazine, have have written that stuff. But I think it really just comes down to, you know, me and Josh and the rest of the team. Uh, we just gravitate towards, like, these these really, you know, stuff that's got a lot of gradients and, and nuance and shading. Uh, and there, I think there's just a lot of room for that. And I think people clearly want that also. And I think it's a little bit of a balm from kind of our daily fire hose of, of our, you know, we get sucked into our screens. I mean, I, I do more than anybody. Uh, and things come at you so fast and they disappear so quickly. And there's something about the tactility of, of a magazine that's filled with these kind of deeper, richer stories that you can, you know, you don't have to consume it all at once. You can kind of come back to it and, you know, feel the paper and smell it and, and kind of be in that place that for me is a little bit more magical um, and, and different and kind of just a relief from from getting sucked into, you know, Twitter or Instagram and scrolling endlessly. Oh, the so. news, the news, <laughs> the news. It is. Never it'll, ends. It'll give you a heart attack. All right. Um, we're going to take a little break here. We're sure. going to come back with Peter Sieve of Meal Magazine. In the meantime, you've got questions for food guy who's also a rock star. 651-989-9226. I'll read it to him, embarrass him. That's what we'll do. All right, we'll be back here in a moment on Off the Menu. All right, Dara here. We're talking to Peter C. We got some questions about Bachelor Farmer. Can you try those things? You can't try all those things at the same time because they just kind of parse them out. They're like little goodies. But if you go, if you start going to the Bachelor Farmer, you will see them all and you'll be on the ground floor of the revolution. All right, I got another question um, about the show. Yeah, it's just going to keep going, man. We're just going to keep going until I learn otherwise. That's the plan. We're just flying by the seat of our pants, improvising <laughs> since 1997. That's my motto. All right, so Peter Sieve is here in studio. He launched a new food lit journal called Meal. If you're wanting to kind of find out all about this, hop on your Insta, go to Instagram, meal underscore magazine. That's how you'll find out about all these things. Um I think that everybody who's listening who's got a food memoir in them should start <laughs> contacting you because I hear from people all the time who have just lovely stories about, you know, uh, growing up on, um, you know, growing up on a farm near Decorah, sure. Iowa, and the things that they ate. And I love those stories. And we just don't have, as a culture, places to to put these things in there. They're just disappearing. I have an issue... I have an upcoming food story that I love. It's going to be in our, I think it's going to be in our March issue. And everybody, you should subscribe. Go to Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine, mspmag.com, and and figure out how to subscribe so you get this one in your mailbox. But uh, I was talking to this woman about what it was like to to live on a northern farm in the 30s and 40s. I mean, grueling, grueling. I mean, just sure. children were up at three in the morning slaughtering chickens before they went to milk. And it's like these stories are not being recorded because the people that live them kind of want to put them in the past. You know, they're sure. just like, I am a person who goes to the store and I sleep in. Um, my life is better now. And and then the stories just go away and you don't know about them. So I hope that people contact you and that you become a place to to 
get some of these stories out. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, pitch us. You know, we, we're we're always looking for great stories, and we're looking to. I we, I I really want us to become a platform for, you know, uh, having writers contribute that aren't necessarily food writers. You know, I mean, we're we're nominally about food. I mean, you know, we're I describe ourselves as a food magazine, but. These are just really stories about people, you know, and how we interact and how we bump into each other in the world and, and what happens when we do. And, and food is just a really great vehicle, I think, to take that tour. So, uh, Yeah, that's how I always have thought about yeah. food, too. That must be why I like your magazine so much is that it's not <laughs> – it's, you know, the, the actual um, – the actual croissant is very interesting in that it represents people's labor and heart and the task at hand, and they're really putting their all into the croissant. But a lot of times it could be a croissant or it could just as well be a, a Zen garden or it could be just as well a beautiful hand-carved piece of furniture. It's like the, the object is not as interesting as the, the person and the passion and the heart and the you know, pouring their life into an object. Yeah, I've always been super fascinated by that sort of thing, and that that's why I think, you know, I, I don't think coming at human stories through food is any different than really coming at them through, you know, music and art and any other way that we express ourselves as human beings. And, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of that gets actually talked about in kind of the, the anchor piece of, of issue one here, which is a really, really fun, uh, lovely roundtable discussion that we had with uh, Jamie Malone and Kim and Christina Wynn, uh, who are all incredible chef owners here in Minneapolis who were all nominated for a uh, best chef Midwest James Beard award last year. Um, and we thought it'd be fun to get those three at one table and just kind of talk in depth about kind of what, where they come at their careers and that, you know, from both the perspectives of chefs and business owners. And man, it went to some uh, really profound places. I think in that conversation, it started picking up on other themes throughout the issue. Like, you know what is what does hospitality really mean in in all these contexts, and what how can we kind of continue working towards more empathy in our culture and uh, and vulnerability in our businesses, and you know, and it, it was really cool. It was such a profound, profound conversation, and they talked a lot about craft, and that's kind of what made me think of this. And you're talking about you know the the croissant and all of the, all of those things, which is this kind of perfecting of something that ends up being so profound and almost magic, but that really happens because of generational you know, knowledge passed down and passed down and, and people being passionate about keeping those and things alive. And it's not glamorous yeah. and it's often not paying att- paid attention to and it's often you know, work being done by women alone in their kitchens. I love this text I got this morning uh, about the three-layer chocolate milk stout cake. I mean, so that's <laughs> a woman, and I know she's going to be blushing when she hears me, but who is, you know, selflessly put hours and hours and hours into greasing pans and knowing how to do this and knowing how to cool everything and knowing how to get everything out without cracking it. And, you know, it, and then you you bring it to a birthday and it, you know, fairy dust, wonderful moment. You're living in that actual moment and then it all disappears. And it's mm-hmm. like we don't have a way in this culture to praise and express admiration for the years of heart and hope and intensity that goes into making a home making those relationships in your home like that stuff is precious and we just have no place in the culture to talk about it Uh, it's precious and kind of ephemeral and and we all kind of take it for granted to certain degrees i think 
Yes. Well, that's a whole other thing. We take it for granted a lot because it's kind of female labor. The sure. point that you have to actually sure. go to, you know, the fancy uh, pastry shop and shell out $42 for a cake. You're like, oh, my God, what is this insanity? I'd rather just go to, you know, go to Cub Foods and get a cake for $8. And then it's and then you're having this kind of lousy experience without heart and without that investment, without soul, without skill. Um, mm-hmm. And so oh, I've talked myself into a corner here, but these are things I feel extremely passionately about. Um, well, yeah, what, and I think we do too. And those are like kind of the more shaded conversations that we're trying to have in this thing and, and try to push forward down the road. Yeah, because it's like one of the frustrations of my life as a food writer is that you kind of get kind of corralled into really caring about these 11 course tasting meals and these great chefs and these, you know, million dollar experiences. And you, no, it's like that stuff is important, but it's never, it's not, it's not the same. And it doesn't, and it kind of crowds out with the glamour and everything. The Celine Dion's of the world crowd out the Rogue Valleys of the world. And you want to be <laughs> like loving these chocolate layer cakes that are getting baked. And all of a sudden you're sitting with Daniel Hum spending, you know, $800 and, and, you know, in contributing to the uh, million dollar restaurant plate industrial empire. Sure. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a, that's a conversation I, I would love to drag out eventually. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who would care <laughs> besides me and three other restaurant critics. Okay. So people want to get involved with your project, find you on Instagram, uh, yeah. meal underscore magazine, find your Patreon. That's how you're, you're. Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of trying to bring this into a more of like a community vibe with the mag and we're, we're bringing people in so we do have like uh, wonderful patrons who uh, are kind of like our sustaining members and that's how we do our subscription model as well all right yeah. and everybody out there keep baking those chocolate cakes keep taking care of the people that you people that you love um next week we are going to have jd fratsky on the show he is the chef who was at the chicoli name strip club in st paul He's just a, a wonderful Winona-born chef who's really done a lot for local farm ingredients. So he's now at Artisan Plaza and Falls Landing in Cannon Falls. And he's just kind of really trying to think about different ways to get Minnesota farm products into everybody's kitchens, you know, from beef sticks to cheese curds to um wonderful ribeye on a plate. So JD will be here next week. We'll be talking about you know how to do this. It has to be sort of every bit, every hand on deck. If we want to support the best farmers in the world, we need to support them all day long and not just be at Walgreens buying pork sticks from China or whatever. So let's not do that. Um, and we will keep this radical, its whole love our farmers situation going next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.